All right, third service. You guys don't seem like a very lively group this morning. I don't know. I hope we, we pick things up here. I tell you what, I have to give props to Aaron because doing three services is hard. He must be in shape like for this thing. I don't know. It's, it's really hard. If you're new, if you don't have a uh, Bible, we have Bibles in the back. We have Bibles underneath the uh, seats. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot yours, you can borrow it. We have notes on all the communion tables, actually colorable notes. And so we have crayons there because we're doing a series called Coloring Book All-Stars. You can follow along with the sermon notes. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app called YouVersion. Click on us, uh, click on live, and you can bring us up by GPS and follow along with the sermon that way. So today I got kind of a long message, sorry. Uh, So I'm going to jump right into it. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Uh, wait, did I introduce myself? No. Okay, my name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. The Apostle Paul, he wrote, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so good to us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord. And we thank you that you work in our lives and that despite our weakness, Lord, and because of our weakness, you show yourself strong. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would reveal the areas in our lives that you want to show yourself strong to us this morning. Uh, So we ask that you would speak to us. Pray that um, you would be honored this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. Uh, So as I mentioned, we're going through a series called Coloring Book All-Stars. This is week nine. We're taking 12 weeks to look at some of the heroes in the Bible, those that you would see in the pages of coloring books or comic books or maybe even some cartoons. And these are the people that we would have lifted up to a near perfection status. And we're taking a close look at what the Bible has to say about how they were messed up people, just like you and I are, with the exception of one, of course. Can anybody tell me who that might be? Jesus. 50% of the time, you know you're right. Um, so today we're looking at a guy named Gideon who, like Samson, he served God as one of the judges uh, in Israel after they had entered the promised land. Gideon made the list in Hebrews chapter 11 of those who exemplified what it means to have faith in God. And so to illustrate the story this morning, we have a couple of uh, coloring pages. First one. Okay, this is Raymond, who is seven. Look at all the action involved there. He kind of highlights the armor and the, uh, the weaponry and you know, the helmets in the background. This is his sister, Brianna. Look how clean that is. She highlights the faces, the people, the fashion. <laughs> you know how you know a girl did this? Look at the detail on the eyebrows. Isn't that awesome? I love that. Super clean. Now, it's ironic that Gideon's namesake organization today, the Gideon's International, whose mission it is to distribute and place Bibles in every hotel around the world, is named after a guy who, in the end, compromised on the Word of God by doing things his own way rather than God's way. And this is really the theme of the entire book of Judges. We read uh, that at the end of the book of Joshua, in Joshua 24, verse 15, it says, "...and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve." whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
And the people, they enthusiastically choose the Lord. In verse 16, they say, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. But we know that after Joshua and the elders who had been delivered from Egypt, after they had died, we see early on in Judges chapter 3 and verse 7, it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. You see, Israel would begin to compromise on God's commands until ultimately they forgot and they forsook them altogether. Over and over again, we read in Judges, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so our story starts in Judges chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Or you can hit the button on your phone. So at this point, when we get to the story, Israel has enjoyed 40 years of peace because God has delivered them again. This time it was through two women, a prophetess and a judge named Deborah and a non-Israelite woman who was named Jael. And she had used household tools to drive a tent peg through the head of the enemy's army commander. I mean, all i got to say about that is don't mess with a stay-at-home mom. Okay? This is scary. And so throughout the Old Testament, God constantly makes it clear over and over that he is their deliverer. And we see that he, used the for- he uses the forces of nature. He used these two women. He used a young boy with a slingshot. He used one man named Samson. He used an army of thousands of men. And today we're going to see him use a few hundred men. So we pick up the story in Judges 6 in verse 1. It says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and caves and the strongholds. And whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Here we go again. It's another cycle. This time, however, the The oppression was extreme. It was severe, both psychologically as well as physically. You see, the Midianites, they they didn't occupy the land, but for seven years in a row, they would descend upon the Israelites like a swarm of locusts, and they would devour all of their food, all of their resources. It was predictable. It was like clockwork. Now, my question is, why did it take them seven years to cry out to the Lord? Seven years. That's a long time. They were slow on the uptake here. But we're often the same way. You see, we often don't want to see our need and face that or our weakness or our dependence on someone other than ourselves. In verses 7 through 10, you see that when they did finally cry out to God, it was because of their circumstances. It wasn't because they repented from their idolatry. And so what does God do? At this point, God, he sends them a prophet. He sends them a judge. But he sends them a prophet before he sends them a judge or a deliverer. He knows what's inside of their hearts, and he knows that they need to understand the gravity of their sin, and they need to repent. And so, what does he do? God gives them a sermon. He gives them a sermon, just like you're getting today. And that's just what you want when you're in the midst of suffering, a sermon, a lecture, right? I know my wife doesn't appreciate that very much. And what was the message that he gave them? Your problem is not the Midianites. It's your sin. It's your rebellion against the true way to live, 
walking with your God. You must return because now you are reaping what you have sown. It's not the message that they wanted to hear, but it's the only truth that can make a lasting difference in their lives or in our lives. You see, we often cry out to God when we're in trouble, when we're reaping the fruit of our sin. We want relief from our circumstances, but we're still often blind to our own sin, our own idolatry. We're still worshiping something or someone other than God. But fortunately for them, as well as for us, God doesn't wait for our repentance before he begins to save us. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We repent because he has graciously begun the saving work in our lives. In verse 11, we see that God had already begun commissioning his judge even before the people had repented. So we pick it up in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Now, the name Gideon in Hebrew, it means hewer or hacker. And it describes somebody who chops wood or who breaks up stone. And so this is somebody of great physical strength here. But what we see here is not a picture of someone with with strength. Our first glimpse of Gideon isn't someone who is strong at all. It's a picture of a man who is defeated and who's discouraged and who's filled with doubts and fears. And how do we know this? Because we're told that the angel came to him and talked to him while he was beating out grain in a wine press. What is a wine press for? Wine, grape, central coast, come on. Why? He was hiding. So we see that he was hiding here. And at first, Gideon, he doesn't recognize who he's actually speaking with here. The term angel could be tra- is translated messenger, and it could refer to just another human being. But as in other parts of the Old Testament, we see that this is not any ordinary angel. He speaks as God himself. And so this is a deep hint here in the Old Testament of the Trinity, One God, three persons. There's good reason for us to see that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. It's Jesus appearing in human form. And what does he say? He says to Gideon, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Was God mocking him here? Like calling a tall man shorty or something like that? Because Gideon was far from a, a mighty warrior here. No, the Lord was saying to Gideon, I see your circumstances, Gideon. But I'm more concerned with what you're going to be because I am with you. You see, Gideon was right in suggesting that he couldn't deliver Israel in his own strength. But God was right to tell him that you will deliver Israel using your own strength combined with the strength that accompanies my promise and my command. The Lord is with you. Am I not sending you? In the same way, even though we or others, we see our flaws and our failures and our shortcomings, God looks at us and he sees our possibilities and he sees how he can transform us through his presence. That's an important point that I'll come back to later. 
So Gideon, he's finally beginning to realize who it is he's speaking with. This is somebody special, probably God himself, but he still has some doubts. So in verse 17, he asks for a sign that it is you who speak with me. So he prepares this feast that no one man could consume, kind of like you would get in any restaurant today. You know, he prepares an entire goat, maybe like Samson. He tears it apart. He he prepares bread from an ephah of flour, 35 pounds worth of flour. And he prepares some soup. Now, this would have taken some time to put together. But when he finally brings this offering to the angel, the Lord takes control. And the Lord tells him, "Take take the offering, put it on this rock. And the Lord takes the tip of his staff, he touches the rock, and fire, which is commonly seen in the Old Testament as God's presence, consumes the food, just devours it. And then he disappears. And Gideon, he realizes who it is he's actually talking to. And in verse 22, he says, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And in seeing the angel of the Lord, he has seen God himself. And as would be necessary for anybody who has seen God face to face and lived, God had to reassure him that he wasn't going to die. And so Gideon, out of gratitude, he now builds this altar, and he calls it the Lord is peace. And he publicly declares his identity as a follower of the God of Israel. So here's Gideon. Now his heart is assured. He's committed. And the Lord gives him his first assignment. Priority number one, before anything else, before dealing with the external problem of Midian, he has to deal with the internal sin problem of Israel. And how does he do that? It has to start in his own backyard. It has to start with his own family. In verse 25, it says, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold there with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you you shall cut down. So what we see here, it's clear, first of all, that Gideon's father, he taught his kids about the exodus out of Egypt and how the Lord had rescued their people. But we also see that he chosen to serve the gods, the Canaanite gods of Baal and of Asherah, and he built altars in his hometown to them. And so it seems like they didn't completely abandon the worship of God for idols, but they combined the worship of God with idols. They had worshipped God formally, but their lives actually revolved around the idols of agriculture and commerce and sex and beauty and so on. Idols that they could control in hopes of actually getting what they wanted. You know, we really haven't changed much in our day. We still worship the things that we think will bring us security and comfort and enjoyment. And if we're ambitious, then it's power or it's wealth or self-indulgence. Michael Wilcock, he says, In every age, there are forces at work which promise to meet our desires, all having one feature in common. They promise that they can make our lives better. We say we worship the Lord, but the world has crept in and controls our heart. In a nutshell, God is saying, Baal must go before before, um, Midian will go. God's altar cannot exist with the altar of idols. And so this is the same principle for us today. You see, God is less concerned about helping us out of our obvious visible problems like money troubles or relationship troubles than he is with helping us see the idols that we are worshiping right beside the Lord. These idols must be removed first. And so Gideon's being told here to make God the Lord of every area of life. 
Tim Keller, he writes this. We are not to add anything to Jesus Christ as a requirement for being happy. We are not to use God to get what we really want. But we are to see and make God the one that we really want. We pick up the story in verse 27. So Gideon took ten men and his servants, and he did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. He's the same guy who was hiding in the wine press, but at least now he's acting on what God has told him to do. And in a very real way, God is asking Gideon to do the hardest thing and to fight the hardest battle first. You see, it's often harder to represent Christ within our own family or our friends or our coworkers. I mean, how many of you think it's easier to stand up for Jesus among strangers than it is your own family or, or friends or, or workplace? Anybody? I mean, I know I, I felt like that before. And so Gideon, he had to live with his dad. He had to live with the people in his community every single day. But it's important to see here that Gideon's commitment to obey didn't mean that he was fearless. You see, he was still afraid. But faith is not obeying without fear. Faith is obeying despite the fear. God didn't take away Gideon's anxieties. And so he obeys, but he goes at night because he was still afraid. And so what we see next is that Gideon's family and the community, they wake up early the next morning, they go to the altar of Baal, they find it broken down. They didn't neglect the worship of Baal and their their daily devotions. They were up first thing in the morning to worship Baal. And they find that the, the Baal altar was broken down. I mean, this is how far that they were fallen from God. And they're ready to kill whoever did this. And they find out that it's Gideon. And Joash, Gideon's dad, he stands up for his son and he says, well, if Baal is divine, then let Baal defend himself. Why should you have to do anything about it? And so from that point on, they renamed Gideon. They gave him the name Jerubbabel, which means let Baal contend with him. Later, it came to be known Baal, uh, as Baal conqueror. And every time the men would look at Gideon, they would see that the weakness of Baal, and they would see the strength of God who gave Gideon the power to do this. In verse 33, Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people from the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abizrites were called out to follow him. And so what we see here, it's springtime, and it's business as usual for the Midianites. They invade, and they're expecting an eighth year of oppression and of looting. But this time, something's different. God has commissioned his deliverer, his judge, to oppose them. And in verse 34, it tells us what has changed. It's a turning point in the story. And literally, it reads like this. The Spirit of the Lord clothed himself with Gideon. I love that. It's an arresting and an instructive picture. We're told that the Holy Spirit put Gideon on like a suit of clothes. God is going to appear wearing Gideon, the instrument that he's going to use. The emphasis here is on the power of God and not on the faith of Gideon. He was only capable of the deeds that are going to follow because the Holy Spirit took control of him and gave him that power. And so the people who were ready to kill him before, now they're ready to follow him into battle. Gideon calls them out, and he calls out three other tribes, and it's by the Spirit of God that they're willing to follow. And so Gideon does this thing. He's ready to take on these invaders. Some of you guys know this story, and you've heard this term. He puts out a fleece. A fleece is a piece of wool. And he puts out this fleece, and he says, Okay, God, uh, I know what you've told me, but I I still have my doubts. I want to make sure you're in this thing. So he lays out the wool. He says, If the wool is is, uh, wet, 
in the morning and the ground around it is dry, then I know that you're in it. And God changes the forces of nature. He makes it happen. Gideon wakes up and says, wow, that's great. Lord, I'm still a little bit concerned. Uh, I'm going to reverse it. Okay, this time, I'm just going to do it one more time. This time, just reverse that. Now, if the, the ground is dry and the fleece is wet or, I don't know, whatever the opposite is, I, I, I lose track of those. Then I'll know you're in it, Lord. God complies. God does it again. And, and I look at this and I think, what a pain this guy is. And you and I could be, you and I can be just like that. You know, a lot of people, they look at these verses and they use it as a model for how to find out what God's will is in specific situations. But really, this is more a model of how not to know the will of God. You see, Gideon was in effect saying, Lord, I know what you said. I know what you told me. I know your will. I know your promise. But that's not enough. I'm sorry. I'm still holding on to my doubts. And more than that, he was testing and he was dictating to the sovereign God the terms of his own program, his own schedule, or else he wouldn't play ball. Now, if we're honest, we have to admit that we are a lot like Gideon. You know, we say, well, Lord, I know you want me to marry a Christian, but, you know, I really like this guy, and there just aren't really any decent single guys out there, at least that I've come across. Or or maybe at your workplace, you know that God has called you to a a high level of integrity, but you're getting pressure from your boss and, You know, you really need this order, and you know if you don't cut this corner that you're not going to get it. Your competitor is going to cut the corner, and it's like just this one time, though. That's it, I I, I promise. You see, our fear is often not that we don't know the will of God. It's that if we obey it, we may not, things may not turn out the way that we actually want them to. You see, the scriptures are clear about God's promise to guide us. Psalms 32, 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Psalms 48, 14, that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. What's amazing about this is not what it shows us about Gideon, but what it teaches us about God's grace and God's patience. You see, Gideon was a special student in God's slow learner class. And God was just continuing to love him, and he was patient with him, and he was working with him. And I thank God for that, because I'm a slow learner too. And so we pick it up in in chapter 7 in verse 1. And it says, Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away uh, to Mount, from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will, te- test, them there for you. I will test them for you there. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. In verse 7, And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the three hundred men. One of the greatest dangers that there is, is for us or for anyone to think that they have or that they can save themselves. The lesson that we continually need to learn over and over again is that salvation is by God's gracious action, not by earning it with any of our actions. 
And so God, he reduces Gideon's army here because he knows there are still too many for the Israelites to know where the glory should go for the victory that is about to come. And it's important here because God often does the same thing in our lives. Rather than build our self-confidence, many times he strips it away entirely in order to deepen our dependence and our confidence in him. And there's an important principle here for us, and that is that God isn't simply interested in giving us victory or prosperity. He's, he's interested in something far more important, far more enduring than that. He's interested in teaching us to trust in him. He's not willing to merely just help us. His goal is to transform us so that he can use us for his greater purposes. And the truth is we often take the glory that is due God alone. And we have to remember that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In verse 7 of chapter 7, we read this story. God, he goes through this process of sending Gideon down to the enemy camp. Somebody has a dream. There's an interpretation of the dream. And Gideon comes to this point in verse 15 where he finally understands that God is in this thing. And for the first time, he understands the greatness of God. And it says that he worshipped him. And in a very real way, we are never really prepared for battle until we know what it's like to worship before God. Because we see after this, Gideon oozes confidence. And he knows that he's confident in God and that his 300 men will definitely be enough. He's become strong in the Lord. And uh, he hasn't gained self-confidence, but he's gained God-confidence here. In verse 16, it says, And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. Verse 18, When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. Verse 20. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled. Gideon's band here is outnumbered 450 to 1. To put this in perspective, this would be like a football team of junior high girls going up against Super Bowl champions and defeating them 49 to 0, even with deflated footballs. (laughs) There's no question here that this is a victory from God. There's no question where it came from. And in this battle, none of Gideon's 300 had to kill any of the enemy soldiers. They just followed Gideon's instructions And they watched God bring the victory. 120,000 enemy soldiers fell that night. And 15,000 fled with the kings of Midian later on to be captured. What an amazing outcome. What an amazing story. But sadly, this isn't where the story ends. If it were a movie, the credits would be rolling at this point. But this is what comes in chapter 8. We see that Israel's condition hasn't really been corrected Uh, even though there was this miraculous deliverance by the Lord. And with all of the previous judges so far, once they were delivered from oppression and from idols, all we read is that they enjoyed peace for the rest of the life of that judge. But that wasn't the case. This was different. In this case, the people were still backsliding, still regressing during Gideon's rule as opposed to after it. And despite all that God had done to ensure that this victory was so miraculous that nobody else could take the credit, they still 
saw this as being earned by Gideon. And we see in Judges chapter 8 that the disunity and the disloyalty was high among the tribes of Israel. And we also see that even Gideon himself seems like he forgot the lesson of the 300 here. He feels like he deserves honor for what he has done, when the whole point is it was what God had done. And so it's, it's a crazy thing. So Gideon, he has this need to receive honor and this violent rage that he goes into when he doesn't get what he thinks he deserves. It actually shows that this victory had been the worst thing for him. He had become de- uh, addicted to and dependent upon success. And this is the danger for anybody who receives a blessing. Success can cause us to forget about the grace of God And our hearts are just so desperate to believe that we can save ourselves. Back when Gideon, when he knew his own weaknesses and he knew that victory could only be by grace, he worshipped and he honored God. But now he's worshipping success and the honor that he thinks that it should bring him. You see, we mustn't forget that any good works that we do, they are only possible by the gracious act of God, not because of our own success. We need to remember that we are saved by grace when we fail, but we need to remember it even more when we succeed. In verse uh, 22 of chapter 8, it says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. This was the last time that Gideon remembered who God is and who he is. Again, if only the story ended here. But unfortunately, Gideon's words and his actions were not consistent here. He had refused to be the king because he knew that position belonged to God alone. But then he starts to assume the honor that's due a king. He takes the gold, which is worth 150 years, the average man's wage. He takes the uh, clothing and the jewelry from the kings of Midian. So in essence, he takes the booty of a king, even though he rejected the position. And Gideon takes that gold and he makes this golden ephod, which is a holy garment that they use to discern the will of God. And he puts it on display in his hometown, kind of like a Bible that he would sit on the shelf and, and never read. Essentially, Gideon, he sets up a rival place of worship in his hometown. And he sets it up as a place where people could come to him for guidance. And the result is tragic. In verse 27, it says, And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. We're told that during Gideon's lifetime that the land enjoyed peace for 40 years, but we know it was a compromised peace without true worship and without real obedience. In the rest of chapter 8, it describes Gideon's backsliding as he lives like a king. He had 70 sons from many different wives. He had one son from a concubine, and he called his name Abimelech which means my father is king. And in verse 33, he says, it says, as, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berith their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all the enemies on every side. And the sad cycle starts again. So what do we do with all of this? I mean, let's, let's look at a few things here. First of all, Gideon... Uh, God found Gideon a discouraged and an inadequate man. He was transformed by the presence of the Lord into a mighty man of valor. The Spirit of God, clothed with Gideon, brought about this amazing victory. But in the end, 
Gideon compromised on total reliance and total confidence in God and total obedience to God. And there are so many lessons in this story, we can't cover them all. But there are a few things I want to look at. First, we can't compromise our obedience to the Word of God. Partial obedience is disobedience. And second, we see here that the most glorious profession of faith in the Lordship of Jesus Christ has to be followed by consistent practice of that Lordship. And third, we see that the safest place to keep our spiritual eyes is on the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are a few things here that produce some significant changes in Gideon's life. And I want to focus a little bit on that. First of all, he had first-hand contact with Jesus, and he had decisively and publicly uh, committed this act of obedience to the Lord. But perhaps most of all, and most important, he came under the control of God, the Holy Spirit. And this is important. You see, because in so many ways, we are just like the coloring book all-stars when it comes to their weaknesses and their flaws and their failures, even though we have so much more to be grateful for. We've been given so much more by God uh, to help us to live for Him. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, it says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We see the Spirit of God, who was always the key to the success and the exploits of the coloring book all-stars, our heroes. He's been given to us to live in us. And it's important for us to understand how, because of Jesus, it's different than it was in the Old Testament. We've been given so much more. So I want to look at a few things. You see, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's ministry was limited in extent. He didn't indwell every believer. He entered the life of Gideon in a special way for a special time. And now in our lives, he's unlimited in extent. Every believer, every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're told we are born again by the Spirit, and he lives in us forever. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's ministry was limited in purpose. He came into people's lives for a special work that God had for that person. We see him entering the lives of, or, we don't see him entering the ordinary lives of people for uh, just ordinary, everyday things. But today, he's unlimited in his purpose. We see that he's given for the entirety of our lives, for character and for comfort and for encouragement and for assurance and for peace and for ministry effectiveness. We see in the Old Testament that he was limited uh, in time. The Holy Spirit didn't permanently indwell his people. We saw that he was departing from people like Samson or, or Saul. But now for us, he's unlimited in duration. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would be with us forever. And we're told that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a pledge of eternal life. And lastly, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's ministry was limited in effect You see, for Gideon, it was the external man, not the internal man who was affected by the Holy Spirit. He wasn't changed into a godlier person, as we have seen. But the Holy Spirit's ministry today in our life has a spiritual effect. His ministry is seen above all else in godly character, in the transformation of who we are, because our greatest needs are for inner resources and for a godly character. And that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our life today. So maybe you feel discouraged or you feel inadequate today. You know that in yourself you're weak. 
we need to remember that God will work in our weaknesses to show himself strong. And then we want to, he wants to show that true strength and blessing come from him alone. We must trust and we must believe in his promises to us, chief of which is that he has sent his son into this world to redeem us from sin. And he's making all things new, even us. And just like in Gideon's story, it starts with the need for repentance. And it ends with the need for repentance. And as believers, we know God's Spirit is continually revealing the areas in our lives that we must turn away from and turn to God with. And that's the only way we're going to experience His renewal and His peace and His hope. It's only through His presence with us that we will become people who experience His abundant joy and reflect His glory in this world. Amen? The band's going to come back up, I think. There they are. And as they do, we're going to go to communion like we do uh, every week. And as we take that cracker and we break it, we remember Jesus' body that was broken for us. And as we dip it in the wine or the grape juice, we remember His blood that was shed for us. We come to communion, we remember Christ's sacrifice, and it's only because of Jesus that we can be reconciled to Him, that His Spirit can take up residence in our hearts, that we can actually experience a transformation internally of who we are. God wants to make us into people who reflect His image. We're going to worship God through the songs of praise, and we're going to worship God through our giving. So we have offering boxes on the side walls or in the back, and we give back to God a little bit of what He's given to us. We worship God by encouraging one another and lifting one another up and fellowship, and that's why we put food in the back in the lounge for you to talk to one another and lift each, lift each other up. And we worship God through prayer. And maybe today God is revealing idols in your own life that you need to turn away from and, and you need to tear down and allow God to be the Lord of your life. There will be people in the back to pray for you so that you can take that step of obedience and come to God with that because he wants to deliver us from those things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy in our lives. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for going to the cross. For, we thank you for living the perfect life and, and dying the death to pay for our sin and for rising, raising from the dead, Lord, that we could have new life, that we could be a new creation. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have come and that you live inside of your children and that you give us the power, Lord, to live for you and you transform us into people who are more and more like you. We thank you that you bring deliverance to the deepest parts of who we are. We thank you that you bring redemption, Lord, to our lives. Father, I, I know that we can be so stubborn and, and so dense at times. And it's a scary thing to just turn over control to you, Lord, and to just go all out and worship you, to tear down those idols to make you the God of every area of our life. We thank you for your patience and your grace. We thank you for your constant love and, and the way you constantly work with us and in us. Father, I pray that you would give us the strength, Lord, to 
lay at your feet, Lord, those things that need to be broken down. That you would fill us, Lord, with your joy, with your peace, with your hope. Thank you for loving us so much. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.